Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us today on this Friday podcast. Um, You know, again, I love it when people reach out to me and share with me somebody that they feel would be a great Friday interview. I, all of you, I'm sure out there listening, have a great story to tell. So if you ever want to be interviewed, just reach out to me. I'd love to do it. But, um, my friend, Ken, uh, Tromlitz reached out to me and said, Beth, I have a great interview for you. Um, here's his information and reach out and see if he's interested and he'll do it. And so I reached out to Robert Wilmoth. I am just meeting him again for the first time myself. And, um, he, Ken had told me that he has a really beautiful conversion story and I thought, you know what? I want to hear it. So Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good. Glad you're here. So, um, I don't know you, the audience doesn't know you, but could you just start, uh, from the beginning? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town called Guntown, Mississippi. Uh, there's about 800 people, uh, very, very kind of traditional country. I mean, when I say 800 people, I mean, 800 people spread over like 20 miles, you know, they had to really stretch the definition of town in order to incorporate it as an actual official place. Um, so I grew up, I mean, fairly poor. I didn't really understand how poor I was at the time, but I mean, uh, we we never owned a place. It was always just, well, um, I guess I get a little ahead of myself there. So my, my mother and my father split up when I was young, when I was eight, and we never owned a place of our own, but we went from the point that they split up, we went from living in nicer places to living in trailers. Um, fighting the cockroaches for the same food almost. There were times in my life when I was young where the only thing we ate was pinto beans and deer meat because the pinto beans were a dollar a bag and the deer meat's what someone killed and brought to us. Uh, My mother made $200 a month stretch as far as she could, but it wasn't very far. Um, And so I grew up in Mississippi in that kind of setting until uh, I was 12 years old. Um, At 12, the trailer we were living in burned to the ground. Um, I still remember what it was like. I remember being woken up in the middle of the night and my mom yelling at me to go grab my little sister who's four at the time and to get out the back door while she went to wake up some guests who were staying in our home with us that night. And and I remember running down the hallway as both sides of the hallway were on fire. It was almost like a scene from a movie where they're like running through the burning buildings, but it was real, just both sides in the heat. As I ran up to grab my little sister and jump out the back door, 
everyone made it out. No one was hurt, but we lost everything. Um, living as far away from town as we did, we lived on a lake out uh, out away from the, from the town. The the fire department doesn't really worry about put, saving where you're living by that time. I mean, the place we were living in was, you know, probably kindling to begin with. But by the time they get out there, the place is already gone. Their job is to make sure it doesn't start a forest fire. And that's pretty much what it was. Um, we had the clothes on our back and that was it. I didn't have a pair of shoes. Um, we finished out that school year. We, we moved in with a friend of my mother's for a couple of months. I finished out that school year with stuff from the Salvation Army. And then we, at the end of my uh, school, at the end of that school year, we moved to California because that is where my uh, mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother lived. And now so, that we literally, sorry, we had nothing, literally nothing holding us back. My mother moved out to be closer to her mother. Did you ever see your father or spend time with him after the divorce when you were eight? So he was around. Um, not that that was worth very much. My father was an alcoholic um, and a particularly crippling alcoholic. I mean, you sometimes hear of functional alcoholics who can keep it together during the week and then fall apart on the weekend. It wasn't even like that. Um, and so he was around up until about the age of 12. Once we moved, I never, I think the amount of phone calls I got from him in high school, in middle school and high school, I could probably count on one hand. I saw him once after that. And so the last time I saw him, I was 15 and I'm 37 now. Um, he passed away back in January of 2020, actually. So did did you feel like you had to take on a more adult role for your mom and your sister or was your mom how I mean how did that go for you as a young man Well um yeah I mean from the moment of the divorce it was pretty clear that I had a lot of growing up to do real quick. I mean, my mother would date. And so there were sometimes men around. Um, but my mother, she was a wonderful woman. She worked hard. She did what she could to love us. And, and in no way could I ever call her unloving or unkind. But she had a terrible taste in men. So none of the men she ever dated or really amounted to much in terms of leadership or fatherhood or really kind of what you would expect from a man in a family uh, and so when my sister ever since my sister's been young and she doesn't remember him at all um, she was born just a few months before they separated and so we moved when she was still so young she doesn't remember him at all and so the only male constant male presence in her life has been me 
And so I was always the one who had to watch out for her and take care of her uh, while my mother was working and doing what she could to make ends meet. Wow. When you moved to California, what was that like for you? Because you were what, probably a seventh grader, sixth grader, seventh? Yeah. Um, it, uh, so I was a sixth grader, but that's because I got held back one year. My mother had me held back in first grade because I was tiny. <laughs> like I was a small kid growing up, which is weird now. I'm normal size, but like I was little when I was really young. And so um, I'm average everything now. I'm probably a little overweight, but <laughs> um, so I was in sixth grade when we moved and um, it was really, really traumatizing. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of better ways to put it. There was a lot of good that came out of it, but the, that first experience was incredibly different. I mean, I went from a hometown, like I said, of about 800 people to a middle school of about 2,000 people. And then uh -huh. my high school was 3,000 kids. So like, when you're going to a school that's more than double the amount of people in your entire town growing up, it's a very different experience. And we moved to um, the Bay Area, mm -hmm. so San Jose, Santa Clara, California, that area. And so there's about a million people in that area, more now, honestly. I think there's a million people in San Jose alone. And so just that the adjustment was really big. Having so many people around me was different. But then not just people, but like the different people. And that might sound weird to people today, but like growing up in, in the backwoods of Mississippi, I'd never seen a Hispanic person in real life. I'd never seen an Asian person in real life. I never heard another language other than English. Uh, and so going from that to a place to where it's just everything at once was a big adjustment. And it was actually really funny because I was the guy who had to figure out how to speak like everyone else. There's almost a language adjustment because the vocabulary you have and the diction you have as a, as a child uh, growing up in the deep south is very different from California. And so it was just as hard for people to understand me. It was like I was speaking a second language and then learned how to speak English, um, which can be very funny for people to hear. Like it's something that most people don't think about, but it is, it's very, so it was very hard. I had to learn, like people had to try to understand what I was saying sometimes. Did you make any close friends that first year? Uh, no. Um, you know, it's really funny. Like there's a person I met that year uh, that just kind of tangentially that has be that I've that I have come in and out of contact with on my, uh, throughout my life for like social media and other things. And so she's like the the person I've known the longest in my life. But in terms of having any friends, like anyone I was close to, 
not really, not until uh, eighth grade or so. So it was about two and a half, three years really before I started making any real close friends. What was it like when you would go home? Was your mom working? Did your sister, did you have to get her from school? What was that like for you through that middle, those middle school years? Um, so it was interesting. We lived with my, with my grandmother. And so um, I slept on the couch in the living room. My mother had a fold out bed and she and my sister shared it. My grandmother had a room uh, they had a tenant renting another bedroom, and um, my uncle had set up a bedroom out in the garage, and so it was all pretty close, like, there wasn't a lot of privacy, there wasn't a lot of time you got to yourself, and there, you know, there were a lot of things I, we were lucky that the elementary school was literally across the street. And so I was just able to walk across the street and pick up my sister. Uh, but she would have to wait till I got home. Uh, and then I could go get her because my grandmother would be at work and she couldn't go get her. Um, and so it was interesting growing up uh, in middle school, learning to kind of navigate myself and try and figure out this place I was living in and at the same time try to take care of my sister because um, if my mother, so my mother got off hours after, you know, nine to five, I get off at three, my sister gets out at two. So I'd pick, catch the bus, go pick up my sister. And then I take her home, we get snacks and I'd just be with her until, you know, another adult got home or my mother got home, whichever happened first. Wow. Did you have any type of religion in your home? So it's interesting. Um, no. I mean, my, um, and I say it that way because there was no, no real sense of organized religion. There was a vague sense of God or Jesus. But up until that point, my only real experience of Christianity was um, this kind of deep Southern Baptist or Pentecostal uh, exposure that I'd had in Mississippi. And that had left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. And I don't mean to offend anyone from either of those denominations, but I remember as a child, the few times we would go to church, just running out of the church in terror because you'd get the preacher up there and he'd start pounding on the podium and, and telling everyone that they were going to go to hell and they were going to burn in the fires of damnation if they didn't repent. And it, you know, having this guy yell and scream at you from the pulpit was terrifying as a little kid. And so I'd run out crying. Um, but that's, that's not to say that I didn't have any any sense of religion in fact by this time in my life I would say I was probably pretty deeply religious um, when we were living in Mississippi I got grounded for a week and I don't even remember what I was grounded for something stupid you know, I'd done something dumb as a kid and so I was grounded to my room for a week I wasn't allowed 
you know, any kind of TV or video games or anything. Um, not that we had any video games by that point, but like I wasn't allowed to watch television or anything, but I was allowed to read. And I had one of those kind of modern children's translations of the Bible. And this was summer. So when you're literally in the room all day, there's not a lot to do. And so I would read and I started reading the Bible and I, and I read this kind of uh, vernacular, modern day vernacular translation of the Bible into English for children. It was probably written for, I don't know, middle school kids or so. I'd say about that reading level, young adult level. And that experience was revelatory. It was transformative. Because I, for the first time, started really, really getting to know the Savior by reading about him. I never really learned about him in the few times I'd ever went to church. And other than some kind of vague general beliefs in God, my mother had never really had any religion that she'd spoken of. And so reading the Bible... It, it made me feel incredible. And I didn't know how to describe it at the time. But there was this sense of goodness and love and joy and hope that I felt from it. And I ended up reading the whole Bible in that week. And I came out the other side knowing that God was real and that, and that, the stuff that I had read about Jesus was real. But I didn't know how to phrase that. I didn't know how to describe that. And I didn't know what that would look like. I just knew how it felt when I read the scriptures. And I could feel that happiness and that goodness that I got from it. And that was part of the reason no no church we ever went to was ever interesting to me because nothing ever brought that feeling to me. God didn't make me feel afraid. I didn't feel scared. I felt the exact opposite when I read the Bible. I felt hopeful. I felt loved. I felt good. And so I, I tried to pray and talk to God as best as I knew how at the time. And I had for years, and a lot of it was very childish, simple prayer, things like, you know, I'd say a bad word, right? I'd say a swear word, and I'd say, you know, forgive me, Heavenly Father, or forgive me, God, forgive me, Jesus, things like that, just simple things, but... I had a deep conviction that God was real, even though I didn't have any religion or church to speak of. And it had happened totally independent of, of any of the adults in my life. Wow. So when you got into high school, what was that experience like for you? Was it a huge high school, just like your middle school? Yeah, so 3,000 kids in high school, but 
high school was a turning point in my life, freshman year specifically. Um, so eighth grade, I started making a friend by the name of Michael. And I remember riding home on the bus with him one day, and this was towards the end of eighth grade. It was pretty, it was, I want to say it was in May. May have been June, like the last week of school, really. But riding the bus home with him. And we got to talking about God. And he told me he was meeting with some missionaries. And he asked if I wanted to meet them too. And I sure said, sure, why not? I mean, I, I'm always interested in learning about God more. And I had actually spent a lot of time in, in middle school looking at religion. I had read just about anything I could lay my hands on about any kind of religion. Uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, Judaism, Wiccanism, and Buddhism. And I had a lot of information. I had a lot of informative stuff. But there was nothing that had actually made me feel anything in, in either my thoughts or my mind. You know, like there was nothing powerful about any of it. And so when he asked me, I said, sure, I would, I would like to. And so then a couple of weeks later, I sat down for the first time with the sister missionary. Sister Hatley and Sister Reynolds. Where were you at? Were you at Michael's house? Yes. Uh, he, so his family, his, he was living with his grandmother and her youngest daughter who had just graduated from high school. Um, they were members. Michael's mother had been a member, but she had been inactive. She had left the church when he was a baby. And he ended up moving in with his grandmother and she had him go to church with her. And so he started meeting with the missionaries. And so then I started meeting with the missionaries with him. And the, the first experience was really good. Um, we were in his home and it felt it felt nice. It felt happy. They gave me what was then the first discussion, which is uh, in similar in, in theme to what we talk about today with the, with the discussions, which was about uh, the church, the founding of the church, prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ and the great apostasy and the restoration. Um, and it felt good. And they gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon. And it felt, it felt right. It felt happy. But they couldn't meet with me anymore until they got permission from my mother. I was a minor, right? And so they go and they meet with my mother. And I wasn't there for this. I don't know what was said. By the time I thought to really ask, her about 
her conversation with them, it was too late. She had already passed on. And so she'd, she'd already died. And so I just, I don't know what happened in that meeting. But coming out the other side, uh, they got permission to meet with me. And so I started meeting with the sister missionaries. Um, so you're just, just to be clear, just so uh, your mom, you never, like she has died as of recently. Well, she's been gone about 10 years, now. 10 years. And so you're saying that it, after you got permission, you don't know what happened that in that conversation. Cause you didn't have the time. You didn't speak to your mom or ask her about mom. What happened? How did that conversation go? Right. Yeah. I never okay. thought to ask her about it until I couldn't ask. And then tell you couldn't. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, so I started meeting with them, with them, with the sisters and immediately I fell in love with it. Uh, immediately I fell in love with the gospel because it felt good. It felt right. The reading the book of Mormon made me feel the exact same way I felt when I read about Jesus in the Bible. Going to church made me feel like what I'd read when I was reading the New Testament and reading about the Savior. And of course, now I have the language to describe it. Uh, what I was feeling, what I was experiencing was the Holy Spirit. But not only at that time did I not have the, the vocabulary to describe that or the words to put to it, uh, it was so unlike anything else I'd experienced in my life up until that point that I had no idea how to even wrap you know, wrap my mind around it, how to, how to even try to begin to describe what it was like to feel, feel God's love. But I was afraid. I was a kid and I was scared about what other people were going to think. I was scared about what my mother would say. And so I started going to church. Heck, I started going to seminary once school started. Uh, and, and I loved seminary. I, I've always been bookish. Uh, even today, I'm a teacher. I love reading. And, I, and literature has always been something that uh, has been a passionate part of my life. Books has been. But oh, I was like the desert ground, like when it rained. I was so parched and so dry that I, and I had no idea what it would be like. And so going, going to church and going to seminary, like kids complain about it, but it was the greatest 
thing I had ever done up until that point in my life. I felt like I was being fed for the first time. I felt like a man dying in the desert getting a cup of water and just wanting to dive into a pool. Uh, I was learning so much. And it was already beginning to change who I was. But I was scared still. I, I was scared what the adults in my life would say. I was scared what the, what the few friends I had made would think. Um, and so I kind of came to this place where I was stuck, where I stayed. I went to church every day uh, or every Sunday, went to seminary, but I didn't progress any farther. Did Michael, did he also do the same as you or he did? So he went to seminary with you? Yes. Um, in fact, very soon after this, I would end up moving in with him, uh, with his with his grandmother. The home we were living in, uh, we were renting. So my, we were living with my grandmother, and she was renting. And the homeowner wanted to renovate the place. Uh, perhaps it's a story that isn't all that old in modern California today. He wanted to renovate it so he can raise the prices. And so he gave us an eviction notice and we didn't find any place. I mean, uh, 30 days is, is very rarely enough to find a place in California. Um, and so we had to leave. My mother and my grand, my, my grandmother and my uncle moved in with a friend my mother and my sister found a room that they were renting, well, my mother was renting uh, in Southern San Jose, which for us, from where we were, it was like an hour, hour and a half drive. Uh, and then I ended up moving in with Michael. My mother asked, his grandmother if I could live with them until my mother found a place that we could all stay because she didn't want me to move from high from high school um, she didn't want to disrupt my life in that way and so I moved in with him and we were a block and a half from the church building so we walked to church and then the church building itself was a 15 minute, 20 minute walk to school. And so we'd go to church in the morning for seminary and then we'd go to school. What did his grandmother think about it all? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, although I wish I did. Um, she let me stay there and she was always welcoming. She fed me, she sheltered me, she took care of me, she made sure I had a place to sleep. Um, and as hard as it was, and I, this, 
So this is the second time in my life, right, that I'm homeless. The first time is when the trailer moved down and we had to move to California. And so now this is the second time. And so I'm homeless again. But I didn't feel that way. I can't say she loved me like I was one of her own, but she definitely took care of me like I was. And honestly, it was a blessing. For the first time in my life, I was in a home where the Spirit was, where the Holy Ghost was present. And that was different. I never had that before. And so it felt comforting and it felt loving. Um, Michael and his family weren't the last people I ended up living with. Um, but they were the ones I lived with the longest. And they took care of me um, all for, for almost a year, really, I lived with them. Going to school, going, waking up, going to seminary, going to school, coming home. Uh, going to church on Sunday. I was never into young men's activities. I never really took part of that. Um, even even after I got baptized, and that was more of my own foolishness as a teenager than anything. But I went, um, but it ended up being a blessing because, like I said, this was the first time I'd ever been in a home where the Holy Spirit was there and a home that had been set apart and blessed and a home where the gospel was part of all of the daily life. And I realized I wanted that as well for myself and for whatever my future family would be like. So when did you get baptized? Um, so I got baptized a little over six months later. I guess about seven months later. Um, I started meeting with the missionary, with the sisters in late June. And I got baptized in February. And I like to joke that it took an apostle for me to finally get my stuff, to get my uh, act together. But what happened was I'd been going to church and, and, and that wasn't easy. I mean, I didn't have Sunday clothes, right? Like the first times I ever went to church was in like jeans and a white t-shirt and I'd reek of cigarette smoke because everyone in the house smoked. It, uh, it was inescapable. So I, I stuck out and, you know, like a sore thumb and I smelt like a sore foot. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't easy in this, in that sense, but all the adults in the, in the church, and I never, I didn't make a lot of friends outside of Michael uh, in my home ward, in that first ward. In fact, there weren't that many to begin with. Most of them were uh, most it was an older ward, and most of the kids went to a different high school. The few that did, we just never really connected. Um, so I'd been going to church 
for about six months or so. And then uh, Elder Boy K. Packer came for a state conference. And as part of state conference, and this is the only time I've ever seen this, I'm sure they've done it elsewhere, but at no other time have I ever seen this in any state conference that I've ever been to. But Elder Packer gave his address. And then he said, I want to invite everyone who's not a member of the church and who's looking into it, who's investigating, to meet with me after the meeting is over in the Relief Society room. And so myself and then a group of maybe 15 others uh, went to the Relief Society room and it was just us and an apostle for half an hour. And he just let us ask questions and he answered them. Did you ask a question? You know, I don't even remember, but I do remember what it felt like. Um, here is a man, like he looked like, I don't uh, Elder Packer at that time was still fairly able-bodied, and but he was elderly. You know, he was he was past retirement age. Here was this old man in a business suit that looked like every other generic businessman I'd ever seen, uh, you know, uh, on TV in my entire life. Looks like he might be on the board of some corporation somewhere, but. The absolute presence in that room was earth shattering. There was something about him that filled that entire room. And at the same time, it was both comforting and loving, but also, I don't know, demanding of respect. There was something about this man that was different. And there was something about him that was greater than any other man I'd ever met in my life. And I remember shaking his hand and it was like thunder. Uh, you know, in the, in the Book of Mormon where Nephi uh, tells Laman and Lemuel not to touch him and they touch him and they're shocked it was like that but in a good way and there was something that was just positively powerful about this old man that was just strumming with power like an electric line when you walk over it and you can hear it humming and then the insight and the wisdom that he had when he was answering people's questions. Um, I remember thinking, you know, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to shake this guy's hand? Like the only conception I had had at that time was, you know, what you'd seen in TV, like with the way that people treat the Pope and they kneel and they kiss the signet ring, the papal, the papal ring. I was like, should I do that? Like, what, what should I do here? 
but it was just a simple handshake but that simple handshake was way more than that it was the power of the apostleship it was the power of the spirit it was the power of the priesthood the keys of the kingdom however you want to look at it all of those things and more and it was funny i remember talking to some other uh to some other people from our war that had been investigating and they had uh, spoken to uh, elder packer and they told me you know they were shocked to see me in the meeting because they thought i was a member they had started coming after i had started investigating and that's when i realized that this whole experience uh it was the first time in my life I'd experienced true holiness in that sense. And I realized that why wasn't I a member? What petty fears in my life had been holding me back? And what experiences was I missing out because I was not letting God into my life? the degree that I could. So I decided to get baptized. I think it was the next week that I went and and asked and told the sister missionaries that I wanted to get baptized. By that point, I was living uh, with another uh, another member family. Michael's family had actually moved. Uh, or were in the process of moving, I should say. And so I had moved in with another family, the young men's leader of the ward at the time. And I remember, um, I remember reading something he'd written about us. Um, and he'd written that, you know, he said that, we he wasn't sure why we were so drawn that we were so drawn to him but that both michael and i were both missing a father and that we needed father figures and i don't know how much of that was true although i absolutely needed a father figure in my life uh, and the lack of one was a desperate lack in my life. But I do remember learning what it was like to be a father from him. And another member, uh, Mark and Abby, I moved into their home and lived with them uh, right after I got baptized. And so one of the blessings of this period in my life was actually getting to live in a home where I got to see what the gospel looked like and felt like in action. And I got to see what it meant to be a father and to be a husband and to be godly men. And, and I got that example that I had been lacking in my entire life. Um, and so all of these kind of things came together and I told the sisters I wanted to get baptized. Did your mother come? Hmm. Um, so my mother didn't know. 
I, um, you didn't have to get permission for the baptism. Oh no, you have to, I just didn't tell her. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the sisters were under the impression that she'd given permission. Uh, I figured I was getting baptized. Like God was going to forgive me. It'd be all right. But so I didn't tell her. Uh, my mother found out when the guy who was making the invitations dropped them off to her. At that time, by that time, we were making the invitations. And so this was just a couple of weeks later. I'd kind of, I wanted to get baptized that night. I was like, all right, let's just do it. I'm, I'm done being afraid. And one of the sisters asked me, well, what finally made you make the decision to get baptized? Sister Hatley asked me. And, and I told her, you know, it, it feels right in my heart and in my mind uh, that I know this is true. And I can't deny that any longer. I can't resist it anymore. Um, and so I'd, so I'd want to get baptized that night. I was like, right, can we just do it tomorrow? Like, no, we need to get things ready. We need to make sure the bishop can be there. We need to make, you know, plan things. Uh, and so it took about two weeks. Um, a week after I decided to get baptized. I moved back in with my mother because she was staying uh, in a place. Uh, She was still staying with a friend in two bedrooms. So it was one bedroom, but two beds in the bedroom. So I had a bed. And so I hadn't told her. And Brother Landry dropped off the invitations. And I remember thinking, man, I need to get to I need to get home in time to intercept him before he gets before my mother, but I was unable to. Um, I had some stuff after school I had to do, and then the buses were late. Uh, public in public transportation, until um, so I got there late, and then she had the invitations and she asked me if I was getting baptized and I told her I was um, and that's when she told me that um, she was a member of the church what your mother is a member of the church my entire family was my grandmother my uncle everyone what they had gotten baptized when my mother was a young child. Um, my grandfather was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he'd been a uh, pilot during the Vietnam War. He was exposed to Agent Orange. It was actually ultimately what killed him. But he had become an alcoholic uh, during the war. And so my my grandmother had told him, had taken the children, said, if you don't stop drinking, then you're never going to see us again. And she left. And so the day that she left, the missionaries knocked on his door. Um, 
he had had to clear the beer cans off the uh, couch in order to let them sit, to give them a place to sit down. He ended up getting baptized. He quit drinking. He was baptized. My grandmother was baptized. My mother was baptized. My aunt and my uncle were baptized. And they were sealed in the uh, Phoenix Temple. Yeah. Wow. And then after my grandfather's death, um, the family kind of split up. My mother had always been kind of rebellious. I think she rebelled. So my grandfather was very much the kind of classic military disciplinarian. And it got really harder towards the end of his life because he died of a brain tumor. And I don't know if you've ever known someone with a brain tumor, but it drastically alters your personality. Um, and one of the common treatments for, with it, treating it with steroids, tends to make you more aggressive. And so as his tumors got worse, he got more aggressive and, and violent. And so he went from being controlling and, and authoritarian to abusive. And so my mother rebelled against that and she left. She left the house, she left the family. She moved from Illinois to Mississippi and married my father who was 10 years older, 11 years older than she was. Uh, and she didn't cut off all contact necessarily but that space was on purpose and she stopped going to church so when she says to you i'm a member what was that like what was that moment like for you too well i felt like an idiot like here i am afraid and she was happy for me she was overjoyed and she told me that, you know, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to join the church because you felt like it was something I wanted you to do. I wanted you to join the church because it's the right thing to do. And I didn't want you to judge the church based on me. She told me, you know, I'm so broken and I'm so screwed up. I didn't want you to think that this is what Mormons are like. I'm not a good example. The church is better than I am, and its people are better than I am. Um, which is very much like my mother in that sense. Um, she was always trying to fix other people. She was always trying to help other people, but she never, she never understood how good she was despite her own flaws. Um, and so I was shocked. And I was happy though, because at the same time, one of the biggest sources of, of hesitation and, and fear in my life was taken away. And so I got, you know, at the end of the week, that Saturday, I got baptized. 
And that was an incredible experience. Did she come? Uh-huh. She came. My grandmother came. Um, can't remember if my uncle came or not. He'd been youngest when my when my grandfather had went through the worst in his life and became the worst kind of person he was. And so he always bore that trauma. And part of him was always angry that the people and men in his life, including men in the church, didn't didn't save him, didn't stop it. Um, but he carried that trauma with him for the rest of his life. And it, and it always made me sad because he never got the healing he could have had if he'd come to church, if he'd been in the gospel. But anyway, my baptism was amazing. Um, I had a lot of people there. Um, there were, so the baptismal room was full. By this point, I'd been going to church for over six months. And so I knew quite a few people. So uh, a lot of people showed up. So had you, just for clarification, had you lived with different people throughout those six months after you left Michael's and then you went to a couple of their families? So, so at this point, um, I was living, so the man who baptized me, Chris, I, he was a young men's leader and I'd been living with him for about uh, two months by that point. Um, and then after I was baptized, well, I moved in with another family. It was like his first or second counselor. His name was Mark, uh, Mark and his wife, Abby. And so I moved in with them and I lived with them for a couple of months afterwards as well. So you never went back to your mother's? Uh, not, not for a while. Um, it was over a year before we were able to find a place stable enough to where we could all move back in together or permanently. Um, but she came, back, she came back closer to you where you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, before she was, we were able finally to find a place um, that was within the school district and the church boundaries and everything else. Uh, I remember what it was like when I got baptized, too, and it was really funny. Uh, well, I, I remember going under and coming up and, and asking me, how do I feel? And I said, I uh, wet, and everyone laughed. But what I felt was warm. What I felt was love. And what I felt was hope. Um... I was confirmed the next day. So all the sisters who had who had taken part in part of me were part of the baptism. Um, and by that point, it, it's really interesting. At least I think so. So this, the two sisters who had originally started teaching were Sister Hatley and Sister Reynolds. And Sister Reynolds got transferred. And three other sisters moved through that same area within those six months. The only person that stayed was Sister Hatley. And then I got baptized and she got transferred the next, the next uh, like month, the next set of transfers. 
Uh, but it seems like the Lord knew exactly who I needed when I needed them. And I remember getting set apart and I feel I was set apart, so I was given the gift of the Holy Ghost, I was confirmed, and then I was made a teacher, and given the Aaronic Priesthood, I made a teacher, and I I remember feeling like something was settling on me, but not in a way that weighed me down, but in a way that lifted me up, that made me feel whole. Um... And made me feel good. Um, a couple of months later, so that July I turned sixteen. Yeah, no, 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 not that July. Sorry, I'm getting my years confused. About a year later, right? Um, and I got to baptize my sister. And that was, that was an incredible experience. And my mother was never able to really come back to the church the way that she want to, wanted to. For most of her life, she felt really bogged down by shame, by the shame of, and mistakes of her past. But she tried. And part of it was smoking. She always felt shame for the fact that she couldn't quit. But no matter what she tried, she kept smoking. But part of it was also an excuse. Um, She didn't think very well of herself and she didn't believe in herself. But my grandmother came back to church. She quit smoking and she started coming to church. Um, I got to baptize my sister. And so then every week, the three of us would go to church. And then about once a month, my mother would come with us as well. And that really changed our lives. When when I was finally able to move back in with her, I remember thinking that, you know, these experiences that I'd had, as hard as they'd been, they'd been good as well. Because now I knew what it was like to be in a home where the priesthood was. I knew what it looked like to be a, to be a father, to be a husband, to be a good man. To, to be someone who tried to live the gospel. And I knew how it could bless the lives around of those around you when you did. And so as we tried to do those things in our lives, imperfectly, it, it healed a lot of the trauma in our lives. I know it did for me. I mean, found the father I'd always been looking for when I found my heavenly father. And 
I found the strength to be able to help take care of my sister in ways that I hadn't been able to before and to help my mother in ways I hadn't been able to before. Um, and the people in the ward ended up being some of the most important people in my life. Um, it, just, it was incredible the way that joining the church changed us and changed everything around us in our lives for the better. Uh, my mission president once told me that, um, he said, Elder, you are proof that the Lord never forgets his lost sheep, but that he always comes and finds them. And I definitely have a testimony of that. I look at the experiences in my life and all of the hardships and all of the tragedies brought me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would my life have been easier if our trailer didn't burn down and we lost everything? Maybe. But it wouldn't have put me in the school I needed to be to meet the person I needed to meet, to meet the missionary. It didn't put me in homes where the gospel was so that I could feel the spirit, so that I could marinate in the Holy Ghost. It didn't put me in a place where I could go to church every Sunday and I could go to seminary. It didn't put me in a place where I could uh, meet an apostle and feel the power of God in in his chosen and authorized representative. It didn't put, you know, all of these things that happened, the trailer burning down, the being homeless, not having a place to be with my family, all of those things put me in the exact places I need to be to find the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be converted to it, and to have the examples of, that I needed to start becoming the kind of person that I know not only wanted to be, to, but to try and become the kind of person that God wanted me to be. Absolutely. Did you leave on a mission after high school? And yeah. where, did, where did you go? So I went to the Arizona Tempe mission. You did? Um, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so it was, there was never doubt in my, in my mind that I wanted to serve a mission. I mean, uh, part of it is just once, when you're a new convert, you want to tell everybody that kind of fire of the gospel is so strong in you for the first time that you just, you want to shout it to the world. But it also fulfilled a hunger that I had had since I'd read that Bible for the first time as a child, reading about the apostles and their missionary companions traveling all over the Mediterranean, all over Israel and Greece and and uh, Rome 
and teaching people about Jesus Christ and the way and the power that that it felt with them and the way that it changed other people. I wanted to experience that. And so there was never a moment in my life where after I joined the church that I doubted I was going on a mission. I just didn't know how. And how did you financially do that? And how did your grandmother and mother, um, how were they able to handle you leaving, knowing that you were probably a good support for them? So, um, by this point, what had happened is my, my mother and my grandmother had found a duplex. Uh, and so each, each family rented part of the duplex. We rented one side and my, my grandmother and my uncle rented the other side. And, um, My mother was proud that I could serve a mission, but she had no way, she had no way to finance it. And of course at, at, at 19, like at, at 18, when I first started thinking about this, right? I never like, really put two and two together um by this point my mother was working as a nurse and she was working about four days a week 12 hour days uh thursday friday saturday and sunday um and so perhaps for the first time in our lives, she was making enough money to really provide for the family in, in, a, in a stable sense. But I didn't have enough, you know, they didn't have enough money for me, but I didn't think about that. Not really. I was just, yeah, I want to go. And no one ever talked to me about it either. No one was that, my bishop was never like, so Robert, how do you plan to pay for your mission? It was never something anyone talked to me about. And so I packed up, I put in my papers, I was accepted, um, and I went. I, I always kind of felt guilty about it because, you know, everyone like opens their mission papers around everyone and there's a big thing. I didn't do that. I, I went to the post office at like 1030 at night I found my papers and I opened them there and found out where I was going. I always felt like I disappointed my mother because she never got to have that kind of big surprise um, along with me. And so I never put in the thought about how I would go on a mission. And no one ever asked me how. It wasn't until I was on my mission and I was writing letters with my mother but I found out, you know, that people in the ward were paying for my entire mission. There were a couple of families that had, that were taking care of everything. They were paying 
the the monthly cost for me to serve my mission. Um, and so that was, I mean, I had already, like I wasn't taking my missionary service lightly. In fact, I was, I think I was pretty passionate about it. But it really kind of had this extra or additional sobering experience to realize that the reason I was here is because, because of the charity and love of others. And I mean that in the best way possible, the Christ-like love of others in my ward, who they didn't tell my family. It's not like they were saying, oh, yeah, hey, we're paying for your kid's mission. My mother found out in a roundabout way um, through, the, uh, through the Mormon grapevine, you know. The, the, but they were just silently taking care of everything. And my family was taken care of by the Lord. When I was gone... Um, the bishop asked my mother and my grandmother, like, all right, so you have time off during the week. My grandmother was getting ready to retire from her job. I was like, all right, so you have time off during the week. Would you like to come and work in the cannery? You know, um, you can help take care of other people. You can volunteer to you know, and, and by volunteering, you can help give something back by uh, preparing this food that the church gives out to people in need. And so my mother and my, my grandmother were both happy to do that. In fact, they continued doing it long after I had come home because they enjoyed it. But I also noticed that uh, from talking and seeing and talking to my mother and everything that they also never came home empty-handed. And it was never quite a bishop's order. Like, it was never quite a bishop's warehouse order. But there was just some kind of unspoken rule that they... And, and, and the way it was, like, oh, Sister Wilmoth, we take these home. They're about to expire, and we can't really sell them anymore, you know? And so they'd always come home with boxes of food. my ward didn't just take care of me they took care of my family too so what year did you come home robert 2007 2007 right when the housing crash <laughs> <laughs> you know we were poor enough i didn't even know there was a crash <laughs> that's funny so you are now in utah mm -hmm. when did you meet your wife 2007. You did. How did you guys meet? Um, I guess it's kind of a typical story. Uh, she's laughing off on the side. I can see her. So she's sitting here in the room with me. But um, so we were in, a, when I came home, I was in my family work maybe a month and I started going to a branch. 
a single adult branch. There, we had plenty there in that part of California. There's plenty of members, and there was a single adult ward. But they're trying to see if they could have two single adult wards. So they opened up a branch as well to see how the branch would do. And I started going to the single adult branch uh, to see if it could be expanded into another ward. And um, I don't know, within, within a couple of months, I was called to be the eldest quorum president there, which is the easiest version of an eldest quorum president you can ever have. Um, because all of the real necessary stuff like the that well, I, not necessarily, but like the welfare concerns elders have or taking care of family wards. And so I just, I, that was a big burden I didn't have to worry about. So it was like the easiest version of elders quorum president you could ever have. And it was actually kind of nice because it meant I got to work with the, the male members of the branch and I got to go out and visit and meet people. And so I'm the eldest quorum president. I'm in charge of helping decide who is whose home teacher, right? That's part of my calling. And so one day I see my wife walk in and she's stunning. She's beautiful. But more than just beautiful, she absolutely glows. There's a light just coming out of her. I don't know. Have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? I've seen parts. <laughs> so in the first movie, in Fellowship of the Ring, they go to Lothlorien and meet the, meet the elves and Galadriel. And, and the lady Galadriel in the movie, she literally glows. Like they add light with the special effects and everything to make her exude light. Like she glows. And they set all of her scenes in the darkness at like night so that you literally see how much she stands out. She is a light in the darkness. Well, that's what my wife was like when I saw her. And she's still like that. She absolutely glows. So I had to meet her. So I made myself a home teacher. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, you know, she needs a home teacher. I'll be her home teacher. Um, and so I texted her, told her I was a home teacher. And we met and talked, but nothing, nothing romantic happened between us. Um, first, we became friends. In fact, well, she became friends. I was madly in love with her. Um, still, I'm still madly in love with her. But of course, I was only 21. Yeah, I was 21 and she was 19. No, she was 18. Yeah, so we were both pretty young. And we're, so we became friends. We never really dated. Um, we were friends for seven years. Um, 
before we did you say seven years yeah whoa (laughs) we were friends for about seven years before we ever went on a date what but um after we went on a date after that first date we got married in like five months so once we actually started dating things went pretty quickly so did you get married in 2015 14 2014 August 22nd oh that's a good day did you um did you stay in California during that time or had you moved on so after high school I never really I I didn't live in California for very much after high school only a couple of years I came home and I was home for about about a year and then I went to school and that was oh no that's not true for about two years I was home for about two years and then uh, going to a local community college and then I went to uh, Southern Virginia University for a little while oh good I really enjoyed it there it's really beautiful I'm a history I was a history major I realized as early as junior year of high school, I wanted to be a history teacher. And so uh, SVU is in, um, well, they call it Buna Vista, Virginia. And it is a rock, like it's, you could throw a rock and hit a civil war monument kind of a place. Uh, In fact, um, Lexington, Virginia is nearby. And that's where Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson are buried, famous Confederate generals from the Civil War. And then just about 20 minutes, 30 minutes down the road, down the freeway, uh, you can go to the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library because that's where he was born. And so it was a great place for a history major to be. But then my mother died. And so I came home. Um, she had a uh, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's, Lou Gehrig's disease. A, yeah, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, when you have Lou Gehrig's disease, what happens is, is your muscles stop working. Slowly, you begin to atrophy. And eventually, um, either your heart stops or your lungs stop. So for example, my mother more or less suffocated to death. Um, her lungs stopped working to the point to where she was getting so much, so little oxygen that she couldn't stay conscious anymore. Um, and so my grandmother called me and told me my, so she'd had it for a few years by this point. Uh, and that was incredibly hard to see because my mother had always been strong both both emotionally and mentally but also physically like my mother was a head shorter than me and she could have probably knocked me out in my 20s like she was uh, she was always strong being she'd been a cna a certified nursing assistant and she'd worked in nursing homes up until the time that she got her um, nursing certification. 
And so she was always literally lifting and moving people. And when you spend your days lifting 80, 100 pounds regularly, you get strong. And so she was always strong to me. And then to watch her physically just wither was hard. Um, but I still went away to school. And part of it was her telling me, like basically ordering me to go to school. And then she never let me know how bad it was while I was gone either because she didn't want to interrupt my experience with school. And so she didn't tell me that she was getting as bad as she was until uh, it was too late. She was already in the hospital and my, my grandmother called me and told me what was happening. So I left, I left Virginia, flew back to California. And then after she died, I spent another year or so in California. And then I went to BYU, Idaho. Uh, and then I eventually graduated from BYU and moved to Nevada, excuse me. And then from Nevada to Utah. And that's when you and your wife got married? Uh, we got married when I was in Idaho. So you we did. got married while we were, my grandmother, my mother had died. Uh, my grandmother was still alive at that point. And so we got married in Idaho. Well, I was at school in Idaho. I came back for the summer. We started dating and we decided we wanted to get married. And so we got married that August. And then we both went back to Idaho. So now you're a history teacher. Mm-hmm. And do you have any children? I have one and one on the way. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. So a, go ahead. What were you going to say? I have a six-year-old and a baby due in January. Oh, congratulations. Well, Robert, you're pretty special. Um, Thank you. You're pretty special. <laughs> Thank you. You are a modern day Joseph Smith story. Well, you. you had a yearning that I wonder how many young people are searching for truth and light. I mean, I know that they are a lot of them are, you know, they're all sent here for this time this day, but you truly, um, you were a seeker of truth and you, you found it and heavenly father provided a way and a path for you to get that. Um, before, yeah, please. One more thing. The story, the kind of story comes together with this year. So my father died in 2020, right before everything went before COVID. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he was dead for a year, but I couldn't do his work. Um, because the temples were shut down. And then even after they opened up, they were opened up on such a small basis that I could never go. I could never get anything planned and ready. And so then earlier, uh, just a couple of months ago, I was able to go and do the sealing work for my family. My wife and I were sealed together in St. George. 
Um, but I wasn't sealed to my mother because my father was still alive. So earlier this month here in, in the Ogden Temple, I was sealed. I got to, my mother and father never got divorced. And it may seem bizarre, but my mother always said she could never do that to my father. And I never really understood what she meant until I was much older. And she told me once that she never stopped loving my father. She just couldn't be with who, him uh, with who he became. He was no longer safe and he was no longer good, but she still loved him. And she never divorced him. Um, and so I got to be sealed to them. I got to be my father while my wife was my mother. And then I got to be sealed to, so I got to seal them together. And then I got to be sealed to them. And then I got to seal them, my father, because my mother's already sealed to her family. I got to seal my father to his father and mother and seal them to their father and mother. Gina was actually there for part of it. That's um, Ken's wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the she audience was, knows. <laughs> um, yeah, well, no, she took part in the sealing too, didn't she? Yeah. But she was there with us and um in the ceiling room with us as part of this as part of the witness and everything and it was it was incredible and so for the first time i got to have that healing power in my family and i didn't feel it and perhaps because there's still trauma there I'm healing from. But my wife turned to me during the, after the ceiling. And she looked at me. And she told me that she could feel my father. And that he was sorry for everything that he'd done. And that he was so happy with the gift that we had just given him. Because that week I'd been baptized for him, confirmed for him. Uh, and then during this, he was, and then that day I was, I went to the initiatory, the endowment and, and the ordination for him. And then we went and did, did the sealing. So I really do have a, a a powerful testimony of the power of the Savior to heal not just personal trauma, personal pain, but that kind of intergenerational pain and suffering as well. There's literally nothing beyond the power of the Savior. That's incredible. That's so powerful. Was your sister sealed to you, to your parents? 
my sister can't be not while she's alive because um, she's mentally disabled okay um she got baptized but mentally she's about 13 okay 14 uh, i mean it doesn't really work that way but it's it's an easy way to explain it like at a typical operational level she's about what you would trust a 13 or a 14 year old to do but that means that she can never be endowed okay she's not capable of understanding or keeping those covenants and so she wasn't sealed to us uh, and and i don't want this to sound macabre but i do look forward to the day when we can be sealed together and i can do that work for her or, or my children can do that work for us yeah that's awesome so my last question for you is because my podcast is called seeking light right so how do you robert personally seek light So I made a remark about teens today, and and there's so much darkness. I, I honestly, as a teacher, I see quite a bit of it. I've worked with, I guess, uh, what they would call at-risk youth. The first school I taught at was a behavioral school in Las Vegas. And all of the kids there were there because they had been expelled. Uh, from a public been, school? Yeah, expelled from a public school. And Nevada is not a permanent, ex you can't be permanently expelled in from a public school, but they put you in what's called an alternative or behavioral school. Uh, and all the students that had been in my school were there All the students that were there were there for things like bringing guns to school or knives to school or gang violence. Uh, sometimes kids that were being released from uh, lockup, from uh, juvenile detention, juvenile detention, would be brought to our school as kind of a transition period so that they could get used to it and then into regular school. And so once you came to our school, you were there until you were uh, had shown uh, for at least nine weeks that you were capable of, of meeting a basic standard of behavior. If not longer, you could be permanently put in our school. And so my point is, is that as a result, I every day work with kids who were the poorest, who came from the poorest backgrounds, who are involved in drug use and gang violence, um, whose lives were covered in darkness. Um, even moving here in Utah, uh, the school I work at now is nowhere near that bad, but I work at a credit recovery school. And so it's all the students who have failed, you know, um, sophomores with three credits, you know, juniors with five credits, when you need 24 credits. And so again, I find myself working with the students 
who struggle the most and come from the poorest backgrounds, who need that light more than ever, who are searching for truth but do not know where to find it. And part of the reason I choose schools like this is because of my own experience of education and the way that learning truth has transformed my life, has changed the way I think and the way I act. But it, it and, and that act is important. It's not just enough to learn the right things or to believe the right things. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to action, right? The purpose of the church is to gather Israel to establish Zion, to redeem the dead, and to prepare the world for Jesus Christ's return. It's a call to action. And so part of the way that I seek light is I try to find people that I can help, that I can serve, that I can try and follow the example of Jesus Christ bless the lives of others. I try to do that in my work. I try to do that in my friendships. I try to do that here at home with my family. And I've found that as I've tried to do that, that I feel nearer and closer to the Savior. Not just because I'm trying in my own measly and broken way to emulate him, but because his spirit sanctifies what I do. It's his work and his blessings that make any success I see successful. And it's his life that directs me and guides me. And so that's the way I seek light. I try the best I can to be an example of the Savior's love to others in the way that so many have been an example in my life, that were examples in my life, and that transformed who and what I am for the better. Yes, absolutely. Robert, thank you. Thank you for doing this interview with me and thank you for spreading light with your story. So thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be here and share my story. I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.